Hey everybody, this is Steve, and I just want to thank you so much for listening to The Elucidators. The best way you can help us spread the word about the show and grow the show and hopefully do more of these for you into the long term is if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review and write us a couple sentences uh, if you're able to. That actually makes a huge difference for us when it comes to uh, promoting the show. If you're not listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please consider sharing us with your social media following on Facebook or Twitter because we get a lot of new listeners that way too. Thank you and on with the show. In the 21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're international relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're decoding global politics, so you don't have to. We are... The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. I, as always, am your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How are you doing, Sumi? Hey, uh, happy 22nd episode, Steve. Uh, thank you. I, I wasn't aware that we've made it to, to 22. I mean, set an age of majority for a podcast? I don't know. I just felt like uh, mentioning that we've done 22 of them, and I also wanted to throw this at you. Guess how many of those 22 have been Middle East based? Uh, quite a few. I'm going to go with somewhere between a third and a half. Does that sound right? Uh, close. We are seven in the Middle East that everyone considers the Middle East and eight if you want to throw Afghanistan in there. But, you know, Afghanistan is, I, I suppose, technically South Asia, but it's kind of also Middle East. So that brings us uh, right over the threshold. Yeah, people kind of make up the regions as they go. Like I've seen various uh, IR publications, um, editorials are like, the Middle East extends from Morocco all the way in Northwest Africa through Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's like, that's just the Muslims. That's not. Yeah, sure. That's the Islamic world. I've, I've seen the Middle East called West Asia. That's my favorite. Um, anyway, let's let's do a, a quick time check here. Uh, we're recording the evening of Tuesday, January 14th. Uh, and we're just going to tell you that we're back in Iran once again, third week in a row. And we didn't really want to be, but we kind of felt like we had to because terrible things continue to hop happen in Iran. Now, if you want to get a more extensive picture on the overall sort of situation in Iran, what's been happening there over the past year, we've had three previous episodes on it. We've got plenty of material on that stuff. Uh, this week, what are we going to talk about, Sumi, about the Iran crisis? It's still bad. <laughs> What's happened? What's this? How is it bad? Of course it's bad. It's Iran. Information and analysis complete. No, it's still bad, and it continues to be bad. Look, this is our 22nd episode, episode 15, so seven weeks back. We were in Iran talking about protests in the streets over fuel hikes, and, mm -hmm. and lots of news reports in the West saying, that the Iranian regime, the Ayatollah, uh, after in its 40th year in power, the, the regime was in a really tough spot. Fast forward uh, five weeks to episode 20 and six weeks to episode 21 last week. 
we then get to these points of like, oh, hey, there's massive tensions with the U.S. and Iran over Iran's various nefarious behaviors in the Middle East and the U.S. and its interventions in the Middle East. And, and when we recorded episode 21 last week, we were right in the middle. We were in the thick of a news stream that said that the Iranians had responded to an attack, had responded to the assassination of their general, Major General Qasem Soleimani, by a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad. They had responded with missiles at two Iraqi bases where Americans were held. And at the time of recording last week, we were like, hey, the news is mostly positive in that it appears that no one was killed. That ended up being the case. And it appears that now that Iran has struck back for the assassination of Soleimani, they were going to de-escalate. And this brings us to what happened last week and why we're still talking about this. Because as these missile strikes were going on and tensions were high between Iraq, Iran, and the U.S., a Ukrainian flight, a Ukrainian airline flying to the Ukraine from Tehran, Iran, uh, it was an American plane, a Boeing plane, that was filled with Iranians and Canadians and other internationals, was shot down on its ascent. I think it got to seven, 8,000 feet. And uh, sorry, I shouldn't say it got shot down. It was, but it all of a sudden descends quickly. That, that was not initially clear. Uh, it crashed. You, you know one of the reasons why it was not initially clear, Steve? Because the Iranian regime lied about it for 48 hours. They tried to cover it up. You've heard this one before. I have. That's correct. Yeah. It's, this is not the first time this has happened either. In fact, some mysterious air crashes, like the one of uh, the Malaysian airliner over Ukraine, people are still lying about what happened. But the Iranians eventually came clean about this one. Uh, it turns out that their air defenses were perhaps a little jumpy, which is understandable given the fact that they damn near got into a shooting war with the United States right before uh, this airline went down. The people responsible for air defense in Tehran launched mistakenly on something like 10 seconds notice. So they had to figure out whether this radar blip was an incoming missile or fighter jet, or in fact, a civilian airliner. They chose poorly and they launched Russian-made Tor-1 missiles, uh, surface-to-air missiles. And basically, this airliner never had a chance. And I think 185 people died, something like that. Everybody on board. Yeah, it's it is an international tragedy, and compounding the international tragedy, it's there's several compounding factors. First, as we said, the Iranian regime lied about this. This is bad. It was called out almost immediately by folks in the West, basically instantaneously. Yeah, it's like we have these, we have the goods on these guys. We have satellite imagery basically showing like missile signatures around the airport. Right. And you and I were slacking about this, like as it was going down. And I was like, I remember saying to you, yo, how is it that they can call mechanical error when like, there's still like a smoldering mess? Like, how could they possibly have gone in and be like, oh, we found the mechanical problem? Yeah, they can't. Um, it looked bad from the beginning. Uh, it, it made no sense as anything other than a really bad screw up by these air defense people who are perhaps not the best trained and have itchy trigger fingers given given the situation between Iran and the US and and regionally. Right. So this is you're absolutely right. So okay, the initial response is, hey, how the hell is this a mechanical error? Oh, it wasn't a mechanical error. Oh, this was a human error. 
you guys messed up. That's not okay. And the question became, hey, Iran, if you're talking about maybe getting into a hot war or at least entering into aggressive military actions that might then elicit a harsher response from the United States, why are you letting any commercial airplanes even take off? It's a really good question. It uh, kind of speaks to a regime that is, in many ways, not competent, is the way I would put it. And in fact, what has happened since then is that many of Iran's citizens have reached the same conclusion. And they are now out in the streets. Instead of mourning Soleimani's death, as they were last week, they're now cursing the regime. So there's been a 180-degree turn in sort of sentiment on the Iranian street. In some ways, the Iranians were lucky to have Soleimani assassinated when they did because uh, it gave them a reprieve from these protests. Um, Soleimani, you know, he was a bad guy, but he was pretty popular in Iran and he was a national military hero. So his assassination raised a good deal of patriotic sentiment in that country and kind of re reduced the pressure on the regime, uh, which was, you know, under extreme duress. Now it's like they've screwed up so badly that I would say it's kind of like finding a winning, winning lottery ticket, putting it in your pocket and then putting those pants in the wash so that you can no longer read the ticket's numbers, and then also bouncing a check. It's really from riches to rags here <laughs> in terms of the Iranian regime's performance. Like the timing literally could not have been worse for them. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Ayatollah, the, the regime in Iran, they are in a tough and bad spot. So again, mm -hmm. we're in episode 22. Episode 15 was about how bad things were getting in Iran. In the seven weeks between episode 15 and now, 1,500 Iranian protesters were killed for protesting the, the regime's uh, fuel hikes and other oppressive political actions, okay? Then Soleimani gets killed, they take to the streets, like you said, and there's a moment of mostly solidarity in the nation. National unity, yeah. And that has gone, like you said, full 180, and it is bad. Now we're back to death to the dictator, right? Right. Yeah. Somehow the Trump administration, I'm not saying they're off the hooks, but they're certainly not the direct focus of ire in the streets of Tehran and other Persian cities. And Steve, you sent me, uh, sent me that notice. What is the Ayatollah going to do this Friday? So the Ayatollah, this is something he almost never does. He is actually going to lead Friday prayers at the National Mosque in Tehran. Yeah. And the last time he did this was eight years ago. Right. Right. And keep in mind, this guy is, I think, 80. Yeah, he's exactly 80. Yeah. And pretty frail. Uh, and he, again, he's the supreme leader of the entire Iranian revolutionary state and apparatus. He controls the revolutionary guards, especially now that Soleimani has gone. He controls the repressive apparatus of the regime. He controls all of Iran's proxies, what he says goes, generally speaking, in Iran. And he feels threatened enough now to lead national prayers in this theocracy on Friday. So we know that basically the regime is reeling. This is a big deal. And, uh, you know, it's not clear what he's going to say, uh, whether he's going to make an appeal to national unity or whether he's going to say, 
we're going to go with to war with the United States and Israel, <laughs> which is a possibility, albeit a remote one. He's going to say something, though. He has to say something because these guys are in serious trouble. They're in serious trouble because domestically there are people in the streets, people that know that the regime will kill protesters, right? Again, 1,500 mm -hmm. plus Iranian protesters have been killed. Yeah, that's, that number is probably low, too. They've been shooting with live ammo. Denying the live ammo, but okay. So that's Iranian domestic politics, which we'll obviously come back to in a second. What has the American response been since the plane was shot down? Additional maximum pressure. <laughs> I don't know that it's, it's possible to add more to what should be maximum, but uh, the Trump administration has found a way to enact additional sanctions on the Iranian economy in, I believe, steel and textiles. So the economy is already collapsing. It's going to shrink by 9% this year. Uh, that's the projection. That's really bad. And uh, inflation has, is now running around 40%, which is not quite hyperinflation, but is definitely not where you want to be. What is happening is that Iran is basically getting turned into Venezuela, which is another podcast that we did, what, right. maybe two months ago now. Um, and if you want to know about state failure and hyperinflation, go check that episode out because we talk about it. But we can get into uh, to that and more implications after we take a quick break. And we are back. So, Steve, where we left off was we were, uh, what's a, a nice metaphor for this? So we were counting all the different layers in the shit pie that the, <laughs> that the Iranian regime is currently living with. So we talked about uh, protesters in the streets resuming after the, the downing of the Ukrainian flight. We talked mm -hmm. about the heaping on of American, more American sanctions, the resumption Correct. of the Trump administration's maximum pressure. I think you called it maximum pressure. You didn't say it, but we're making it a thing. As bad as things are, they can always get worse. That's the lesson here, right? Because they are getting worse. They are getting worse. Yeah. So let's, well, before we get back to the Iranian domestic troubles, because there are more that we haven't gotten into, what mm -hmm. are the European three, the E3 of the UK, France, and Germany? What, is, what are they doing in response to all this stuff? Right. So, so these three countries are generally regarded as the sort of the dove countries that want to make nice with Iran and want to keep the... Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA alive, mm -hmm. even without American participation. So um, sanctions relief, trade concessions, stuff like that, to try to keep the Iranians away from enriching uranium. Now, in response to what has happened between Iran and the United States, the Iranians have said, ah, we're going to go ahead and start enriching uranium. And the Europeans have responded, well, guess what? We're not happy about that. And we're actually going to start sanctioning you too. So these are, these are, you know, they're not friends of Iran by any stretch of the imagination, but they've been a lot less belligerent towards Iran than the United States has been. And now they're actually starting to turn around and uh, apply pressure of their own to the Iranians. Right. And the Trump administration, particularly Mike Pompeo, who appears to be the leading advisor to the president on this stuff. And maybe in general at this point. 
Yeah. Yesterday, January, Monday, January 13th, he gave a speech at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And he said, he reiterated a line that now you've heard a few times, which is, we want Iran to behave like a normal country. We want them, <laughs> we want them to agree to not pursue nuclear weapons and we want them to stop supporting terrorism. And he said, and I quote, we just want them to be like Norway. Which is like, there's a lot of Man. real, what? what's with you all in Norway? First it, was like, first it was Trump with the, why are we worrying about immigrants from Central America, Latin America? Why can't we get more immigrants from Norway? Which is like, okay. I don't know how to not read racial stuff into that. You can't. So here we are with this bizarre Norway. We don't want, we want Iran to stop doing terrorism, stop being nuclear. Fine. This is a bad place for Iran. And it's actually getting worse because some of their allies that the regime depends on are abandoning them within Iranian society, right? Yeah, that is also true. So just in the last couple of days, a number of journalists active in Iranian state media. So Iran has basically state-controlled media uh, on TV and also in print, um, like many dictatorships. And a number of these journalists, some of whom have been basically mouthpieces for the Iranian regime for years or decades, have quit. They've resigned. And one of them actually tweeted out, I've been lying to you for 13 years, and I can no longer do it as a result of this cover-up, this botched cover-up of this disaster uh, inflicted by the regime on its own people. So when the propagandists start to quit, that's usually a pretty bad sign for a regime. Now, I'm sure that they have plenty of people in reserve, but it's, it's not really what you want to see when you're leading a dictatorship. You rely on those propagandists to control the flow of information. And... When you don't have them anymore, you have to start doing things like cutting off internet access. Which they do. Yes, which they do, I think, more than any other single country at this point, uh, which is another really bad sign. One of the ways that things started to go sideways for the regime after the crash was that there was, I don't know how, and I don't, I don't know who made these videos or how it got out, but there were basically citizen journalists who were recording the sky and right. were able to upload videos of the, of the missile hitting the Ukrainian flight that went down. Yeah, we all have HD video cameras in our pockets now, and it's changed things, even in places like Iran. No question about that. Some guy or gal, we don't know what, who actually did this, um, actually got footage from the ground of these air defense missiles shooting down this aircraft, and they put it online just for like an extra kick to uh, the Ayatollah while he's down. And we found out, I think, earlier today that whoever this was has been disappeared by the Revolutionary Guard, surprising nobody. But, I mean, this kind of speaks to the courage of the Iranian people that are out in the streets, even though they're getting shot by the hundreds and thousands with live ammo, and they're still taking pictures and putting them up on the internet, even though they're probably going to get disappeared uh, they know this in a, in a one-way fashion. So, I mean, we got a shout out to that because uh, that takes serious balls. So I'm going to say a nice thing and then a troubling thing about <laughs> the the American response to these protests. The president mm -hmm. of the United States has spoken out in support of uh, the protesters and said that none of them should be harmed. 
Well, normally when a president says something like, don't do this, there is an implicit part of that, which is... Or else. if you, Yeah, exactly. The or else. If you do this thing that we told you not to do, there will be a reaction. This would be fine if there hadn't been 1,500 plus protesters that have been killed over the last several months. Yeah, you're, you're, you're putting your finger on something uh, that is very troubling about the, this, the Trump administration and Donald Trump's diplomatic communication style in general, which is that the connection between what he says and what he does seems to be random. There's no cause and effect in terms of what is being communicated and then what he decides to do and not do. So you don't know how to respond or how to predict what he's going to do. It may be that he just hits you anyway, even though you don't do anything, right? Or you may do what he says you shouldn't do and you don't get any consequences at all. It's basically like pulling a lever in a slot machine, right? Two weeks ago when we recorded, there was the trending social media topics of World War III, is the draft coming back? People right. started buying survival kits. And, mm -hmm. the, and then by last week, it was like, okay, well... We hit their guy, they hit these bases, everybody's going back to their corners. Let's calm things down. I don't think things are better than they were a week ago. And I don't necessarily know that they're better than they were a month ago. They're better than right. they were two weeks ago, but they're not better than they were a month ago. They're worse than they were before Christmas, before we attacked, before we took out airstrikes on 25 uh, Iranian-backed militia members, killing them. And then the Iranians uh, stormed, but not all the way. They breached the wall of the U.S. embassy in uh, Baghdad. And then the Soleimani killing and all that. I think we're basically back to where we were in mid-December with the Iranian regime in much worse shape. And when a regime that is bent on survival is in worse shape, I am anxious about what they're going to do going forward. Yeah, so I think you put your finger on it. And I, I don't think we're necessarily in disagreement. Like, yeah, in, in terms of the macro picture, uh, in terms of the pieces on the board and where they're located, the United States and Iran are basically back to not fighting each other. I would agree with that. Yeah. Except that Iran is miss missing a couple important pieces. Uh, they're missing the Soleimani piece, right? And he was, by all accounts not a pawn, maybe a bishop, something like that. He was a guy who actually did stuff and mattered quite a bit. And yes, he has capable replacements, but like losing that type of human capital, <laughs> even in the realm of like terrorism and war uh, is, is a big deal. Yeah. So that's number one. The other piece that they lost was this airliner that they fucking shot down like morons. And yes, it was an honest mistake. And yes, it was probably because we put a lot of pressure on them and and we damn near kicked off a shooting war with Iran last week. So they were worried about that, uh, but they still did it. And then they didn't cop to it for 48 hours. And that is just a bad look. So, you know, I don't know what type of piece that is. Maybe that's a rook. So they're now playing chess with us down a bunch of pieces. And there's two ways to think about this. One is the way that the administration would prefer to think about it, which is, well, these guys are weaker, so now they're obviously going to give up, right? They're going to do what we want them to do, which is shut down those centrifuges, stop supporting terrorists, and get with the program. We'll you know, open up room in the sanctions so that their economy won't turn into Venezuela and the regime can survive, right? We will have successfully coerced them. That's one possibility. 
The other possibility is exactly the opposite, which is these guys are now backed into a corner. They actually can't climb down, right? They can't stop doing all these things uh, that make them Iran instead of Norway because they're Iran. They're not Norway. And not only that, they're the Islamic Republic of Iran, right? It's the stuff they've been doing for 40 years. You're not undoing 40 years of Iranian foreign policy. You're not. Or, or political ideology. It's not. Exactly. It's, it's really central to their religious ideology, which is, I would argue, not a status quo ideology. It's a revisionist ideology. They want to change the way the Middle East looks. And more specifically, they want to run the Middle East. <laughs> like, that's the whole point of this. It's an expansionist ideology. So are they willing to abandon that? Probably not. Iranian-backed militias have continued to attack Iraqi air base, Iraqi bases where uh, where American soldiers ha are housed after the killing of Soleimani. Yeah, in the past week. If you recall, of the many justifications that the administration, the Trump administration, has thrown out for why they killed Soleimani, they have included. Well, there was the death of, we now know, an American interpreter at one of these bases. They said it was because he is a really bad guy. They also said that there were he was planning imminent attacks. And then the president, in a bizarre and unsubstantiated claim, then said, we knew that he was going to attack four embassies. The Secretary of Defense, who oversees most of this country's intelligence agencies, then said, yeah, I didn't see any information about that, which is to say, yeah, the only way it is, it's possible that Trump didn't make it up means that the secretary of defense, who was, again, nominated by President Trump, is running such a loose ship that people underneath him are bypassing the secretary of defense and taking intelligence about attacks, imminent attacks on four American embassies directly to the president. How likely do you think that is? Vanishingly unlikely is what I would say. And they're managing to keep it from the Secretary of Defense after the fact? That's unlikely. Furthermore, there's another problem with this, which is, hey, look, there was a time in my life where I very seriously considered becoming a Foreign Service officer, and I went through the whole process and all that stuff. The idea was I was going to live a life where my, my world would be based around being in an embassy. Now, if <laughs> I thought... That sounds horrible. Well, I made the much healthier decision of getting a PhD. Oh, yeah. No, real winner. <laughs> anyway, nonetheless, the point is, if my whole professional life was going to be about doing the service of America and helping Americans and American interests abroad and working out of an embassy, and there was an imminent threat that an embassy might get attacked, you might want to tell the embassy folks. But that information apparently never went out to any of the embassies. That's because he fucking made it up on the spur of the moment. Hey, man, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying these bouncing balls and inconsistent justifications for the killing of Soleimani have set up. OK, they have set up different lines for why we did this thing. One of them was, and I'll stick with this one, was that. It kicked off with the killing of an American interpreter. And then when they attacked the American embassy, we responded. And then he was going to go down because he was also going to do imminent attacks. Imminent attacks now is just a broad thing. It means anybody that might be doing some kind of terrorist planning. They, mm -hmm. are the, they have forfeited their lives. Furthermore, as long as Iranian-backed militias in Iraq continue to attack Iraqi bases where Americans are, whole, are housed, it's only a matter of time before an American goes down. And then what happens, Steve? Because what's the American response? Well, you already took out this guy, Major General Qasem Soleimani, who 
irresponsible journalists have compared as everything from their vice president to the Tom Brady of their terrorist operations. <laughs> I'd like to meaning, meaning he's about to retire. I don't know. One of my, when I was talking about this in class the other day, one of my students, I was like, Does, do we know who this guy was? And one of my students was like, oh yeah, on CNN, they called him the Tom Brady of Iranian uh, foreign Jesus. policy. And I was like, way to make the news accessible. <laughs> It's pretty bad. So he's the greatest of all time. I don't like this metaphor. Anyway, nonetheless, like if Iran kills another American or several Americans or several or a militia now, because they're not entirely under the thumb of Soleimani and there's lack of coordination, more Americans get killed. What happens next? Yeah, it, there is a process. The process is whatever looks good at on TV on any given day or night and whatever can be construed at the given time as a quote unquote win. And none of these things need to connect to each other uh, in any sort of strategic way whatsoever. Uh, and this is what you get. You get a situation that is even more volatile than it was two weeks ago. And yeah, now that you've described everything, I actually have come to agree with you. I'm very persuasive. Look, man, bottom line, I am just at this point where I am sick and tired of these whimsical decisions that are made in American foreign policy. One of our most popular episodes, it was uh, what curd stomped. It was the one about uh, Trump just absolutely rolling the curds under the bus after they had, anyway, go back and listen to the episode. Long story short, you got to consider these second, third knock-on effects, because what we've described in the last few minutes is an Iranian regime that might be existentially imperiled. They might be coming close to their last breaths. That is something yep. people are seriously talking about. And what does it look like on the other side of that? Furthermore, if you have an impulsive president who doesn't necessarily follow through traditional National Security Council measures and discussions and weighing out options before making a choice, what is to say that we are not, in fact, in a worse place and closer to war now than we were two weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like the, the, the question we need to be asking ourselves is if the Iranian regime is, in fact, on the verge of collapse, are we prepared to help them? or? Are we going to let them collapse or are we going to watch while they attack us and then attack them back? Because those are the three options. Have we, have we thought about that? <laughs> like only like one of those options is definitely better than the other two. In, in my opinion, it's the first option, which is, is actually to help them out and give them a little bit of breathing room. Um, if we don't do that, if we're not prepared to do that, and there's absolutely no evidence that I've seen that we're prepared to do it. You know, Trump says that he wants to talk, but <laughs> it's pretty tough to talk under uh, the circumstances of maximum pressure, right? There's been no accommodation. There's been no steps backward um, or, or all branches or peace offerings whatsoever from him, right? Um, so the Iranians will have to come to him hat in hand if they want to do it. If they don't want to do it, they can kind of sit on their hands and see if they can continue to use repression against the Iranian people to hold on to power. And that's a strategy that works really well up until the point that it doesn't. And that can turn around really fast. It can turn around overnight or even in the same hour. Uh, the dam breaks and all of a sudden you've got a new Iranian revolution on your hands. Um, or before they allow that to happen, the Iranians actually go to war uh, and play the foreign policy distraction card 
to rally around the flag and try to buy more time, knowing full well that if they do that, they'll probably lose, but they're out of options and out of choices. And that's, by the way, how we got Pearl Harbor. If you are in the American government and you have any sway on foreign policy, I know that's a very small number of people. You have to be really considering what kind of diplomatic off-ramp you can offer this regime. Because every version of staying on this road without an off-ramp continues to put that regime in existential peril. And if you, as we said earlier, you back them into a corner, what do you think they're going to do? Do you think Flash they're going to... Also, how do, you, how do you track back on decades of supporting militias and creating uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and the worst humanitarian crisis in the world now with the civil war in Yemen. Like you can't just snap your fingers and say the regime is gone and these problems are gone with it. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that this is a good regime. I'm not trying to say that they haven't done lots of really really, really awful things in lots of awful ways. I'm not even trying to stick up for Soleimani. I'm just saying, have we considered not just what the next step is, but what three, four, five steps are? Because this could get much worse. It could it can get always get worse. That's the lesson of this episode. It can always get worse. And we hope it won't, but there's a good chance it will, and it will relatively soon, given what we're seeing. You know, I think we're going to call it right there. Uh, thanks a lot, Sumi. Yep. See ya.